0: What's up, everybody? My name is Mel, and I'm one of the members here at Zion. Look, so uh, about two months ago, I started working out, and uh, I've been working out since for five uh, for six days a week. And this is a big deal because I hate exercising. When I was younger, I thought working out was cool and would do it, feel a little bit of pump and look in the mirror for a little bit. But after a little while, I had to admit that... Uh, I didn't do it often, and after I felt some resistance, I would stop, so I had to admit that I didn't like working out. And that changed about two months ago when my wife asked me to work out with her, using these training videos. At first, it was miserable. I would give her death stares, and I would go forth with it anyway because I loved her. And um, it started out as a miserable endeavor, but as I stayed with it, I've seen growth, feel better, and have more stamina. It's still tough to go from chilling to moments later doing burpees. Um, I feel like vomiting most days, the soreness is real, and it's all just painful, but it's proven fruitful. Here's what I've learned from this experience. See, doing what's good for you doesn't always feel good for you. It's often difficult to follow, but it's worth it. In today's passage, we find a difficult reality that comes with proclaiming Jesus' message but it's worth it. We're in a series called Proclaim, and we've been going through the book, uh, well not the book, but Matthew chapter 10. And through that, we've been talking about what it means to share our faith. We pick up today's message in Matthew chapter 10, verse 34. Uh, Open up your Bible, scroll there. I'm gonna read it. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Father, give us uh, eyes to see what you want us to see in this passage. Help our hearts be receptive. That God, even though this hurts, I pray, Lord, that you would do surgery and that we would recognize, Lord, that uh, it hurts now. But in the end, it's going to be for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So Jesus' message will disrupt your life. It will disrupt your life. And Jesus makes this point. Uh, He begins this passage by saying he did not come to bring peace. In fact, he's so adamant about this point that he emphasizes it by repeating it two times. Check out verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth and not come to bring peace, but a sword. We read a passage like this and it's shocking. If you have grown up around the church, you think to yourself, what about all the passages about peace? Isn't that what Jesus is about? You think about Isaiah 9-6, where it calls Jesus the Prince of Peace. Or you think about Galatians 5, where the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, and it goes on. Maybe you haven't grown up in church, but you've been bombarded with Christmas ads and songs where the theme is peace. Or you've heard about the ministry of Dr. Martin Luther King and the peaceful protests that came out of that. See, We hear a statement like this and it can be shocking. Some might even use a verse like this to prove that Jesus contradicts himself. The reality is that Jesus is absolutely about peace. In fact, he's the very definition of peace, Ephesians 2.14, it says, For he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility, meaning, Jesus is the very essence of peace. He doesn't have to create the concept because it emanates from his very character. It's who he is. Now, if Jesus is about peace, then what do we get with this passage here? See, what Paul says is that Jesus breaks down barriers between people and between people and God. You remember a few weeks ago, In the same chapter in verse 13, uh, it says, And if the house is not worthy, is worthy, excuse me, let your peace come upon it. But if it is not worthy, let your peace return to you. See, Jesus is about peace, but not at all costs. See, even in this verse that I just mentioned, there's a condition where if the house isn't worthy, your peace returns to you. Similarly, in today's passage in Matthew 10, 34, Jesus clarifies that his mission is not to bring peace to the earth, Did you get that first time? It says, I do not come to bring peace to the earth. In other words, Jesus is not bringing peace on the earth's terms. The world, namely the systems, structures, and presence of sin in it, call for a peace that is shallow. It's a peace that pacifies. You ever try giving a baby a pacifier when they want milk? It won't work. This is the same kind of peace that ended slavery with a 13th amendment that has an exception clause that says... Except for punishment as a crime, which has led to one of the biggest prison industrial systems in the world, made up majority of black and brown people, which, by the way, people break the law and sin at equally amounts, uh, same rate. See, what, peace, what Jesus offers is not a shallow and fake peace. He offers a genuine peace. Peace at all costs isn't Jesus' priority, his message is. The peace Jesus offers is true peace and is good, but it won't appear that way to someone who is attached to the world's standards of peace. Jesus did not come to continue the earth's agenda for peace. Jesus understands that the peace he offers is out of this world, literally. Jesus is the king of a heavenly kingdom, but what happens when you already have a king? What happens when the possibility of Jesus seems disturbing? Things are inevitably to get dicey. And whenever you have two strongly differing views on something, it creates division. This is what Jesus means in verse 34 when he says, and I'll continue, I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. A sword is not used for kind things. Let's face it. You're not using a sword to open up a letter. All right. The, the reason why Jesus uses the word sword is to evoke a certain kind of imagery. When you hear the word sword, what do you think of? It's pointing to the hostility that some will have to the message Jesus is calling to the disciples to preach. When someone is convinced of a certain way, then the way of Jesus is going to be, well, like a sword. Um, see, the image of the sword here is pointing to division because in Luke 12, 51, there is a parallel account which says, do, do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. Jesus is recognizing that there will be some who respond with hostility, and it's going to create division. Two very different worldviews will not bring peace without some conflict. I mean, we can see this on a smaller scale with things like food, right? Asking your spouse or friend group, what do you want to eat? Can be the question that begins a long and frustrating adventure to satisfy all the cravings and diets involved. One person likes... Comfort food, the other person's a vegan. See, when your diets are completely different, it's going to create a little bit of conflict. Peace without conflict isn't possible and it isn't Jesus' main priority. His message is. He did not come to bring peace but a sword. And this will especially be true when you go proclaiming Jesus as the king and savior of the world. This is especially gonna be true when you proclaim that the current situation of those without Jesus is death, slavery to sin, and lack of joy. This is the sword, Jesus's message. He will slice through some things and expose the disagreements about who he is. Jokes aside though, this is not only going to disrupt issues like what you will eat, Jesus takes us a step further and challenges one of the most cherished things to the disciples. And many of us, family. Jesus makes the point that we should love him above all. Continue with me in verse 35 and 36. It says, For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter in law against her mother in law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. These people all live together. See, believing in Jesus will become challenging. People will turn on you, even people in your family, and you will have to decide if following him is more important. Everyone who believes in Jesus faces this at some point or another, some to a greater extent, but it will happen to all the people who follow him. It happened all throughout biblical history. In fact, in these verses, Jesus is quoting from or referencing Micah 7, verse 6, which says, for the son treats the father with contempt. The daughter rises up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his house. This passage spoke to reality in Micah's time, the writer of that verse. The people of Israel were experiencing prosperity, but they were using it to oppress the poor. So Micah was called to tell him about a future judgment and even more, a future hope that would happen beyond that. This passage spoke to this reality, Um, because just before this, in chapter six, God is accusing Israel of being corrupt and calling for their repentance. So in chapter seven, Micah is speaking on behalf of the faithful people that are still left in Israel, those who will be carrying God's message amidst a rebellious people. So when Jesus uses this verse, it's to prepare the disciples as they go out. He is saying to them, you too are going out as faithful messengers within the midst of a rebellious people. Jesus knows there will be hostility and he is welcoming the disciples into a long lineage of faithful followers who share his message. Just like the prophets who were threatened, persecuted and rejected, the followers of Jesus would experience hardship for faithfully telling others about him. And this hardship would even come from their family members. It happened with Jesus even two chapters later in Matthew 12. He's preaching. His family thinks he's out of his mind. They come to get him and he's like, I'm going to keep doing what my father called me to do. See, this is a challenging idea for many of us who love our families, but this idea was even more rev- like radical to the people who are listening to this at the time, the disciples, because in their day, they were super close with family. All of the Of the members were in their house All these people that are listed in this verse They loved their family dearly They were seen not just as individuals But as members of a family That's why you usually have people's names being like This is that person's son Because they were always seen as a unit They lived in a time where family was everything right? And shame to one person brought shame Upon the entire household your family was your responsibility till the end. This was not a time when dislike for in laws was common. They really cherish family as a society. So when Jesus brings family into the mix, he's leaving no area untouched. Will you lovingly share good news, even if the people hear it, welcome it as hatred, and turn on you? Will you be willing to follow Jesus, even if your family turns on you for doing so? Division naturally happens when people are on different paths. Perhaps you've never faced this kind of division, but there are many around the world who are rejected by their families because they put their confidence for Jesus for life and salvation. I've heard of people having funerals for their living family members because those members put their faith in Jesus. People grow up in homes that believe something completely different and risk it all to be on the other side, the side of Jesus. As far as family is concerned, that person is dead to them. What Jesus is doing here really has less to do with the importance of family and more to do with how much more important he is. Jesus is challenging his followers' priorities, and verse 37 makes this clear. Read it with me. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. It isn't that Jesus wants you to fight with your family for no reason. The point here isn't division for the sake of division. Jesus expects us to love and honor our family. The fifth commandment is honor your father and mother or mother and father. In another story, Jesus exposes the Jewish leaders practicing Their practice of ignoring their family and using service to God as an excuse. It's Mark 7 around verse 11. Even in his dying moments, Jesus takes time to make sure his mother is taken care of. John 19, 26. It isn't that Jesus hates families. Jesus has a high regard for family. But he's pushing us to prioritize him over everything. When your love for family and your love for Jesus are at odds... You should choose Jesus. Love for Jesus should be greater than any loves you have. Since Jesus has a high regard for family, he must think he is higher than family if he's asking us to love him more. And you see, we all know that there's a hierarchy of love. Right? Love for your mom is usually higher than love for a friend. We understand there's levels to this. But do we agree with Jesus that he is at the top of that hierarchy? You might say, Mel, I understand putting your mom before your friend, but putting Jesus above my mom? Crazy. Loving Jesus over parents and children is tough. In theory and hopefully, your parents raised you. They fed you, clothed you, housed you, gave you love and so much more. For the parents out there, you know love for kids is different. Your kids don't need to do a thing for you to love them. In fact. They just take and take and you still love them. But what is Jesus to me? Jesus would not be making these claims if he didn't think he deserved more love. See, Jesus ranks above your parents and your kids because of all that he is and does. Jesus has more power and authority than anyone. Jesus created everything and it all finds his purpose when connected to him. Just like an appliance is only good when it's connected to the outlet. Jesus breaks barriers put up by sin so that we don't have to walk around like he's just wanting to punish us and so that we can have access to the God of the universe. Jesus takes away our guilt and shame by taking it upon himself on the cross and making us clean with God. Jesus offers us a life free from the power of sin so we don't have to do the same old things we hate. Jesus gives us freedom to trust him and not to be anxious about the things we cannot control because he knows what we need and he loves us. He even thinks about sparrows. And aren't we more important? We talked about that last week. Jesus offers us joy and peace where it makes no sense. Like in the midst of a pandemic, economic crisis, unjust killings, racism, when your kids are out of control or when you went and messed up again. Because in the midst of all of that, he's with you. Jesus gives us freedom to mourn the way we should because we know why this world sucks and it isn't the way it's supposed to be and we long for him to come and make things right. See, Jesus is the best hope for you, for me, and for the people in your life. He is worthy. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Philippians 3, eight through 10, a once Christian killer says this, "'Indeed, I count everything as lost "'because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord, For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul is essentially saying that all of his accolades, all of his passion all of his prestige is like garbage compared to knowing Jesus as Lord. All of it's garbage compared to the freedom of knowing you are accepted by God because of Jesus' accomplishments on your behalf. All of it is like garbage compared to the power of the resurrection, power that courses through your vein and gives you life when some things in some areas in your life have died. See, all of it is garbage compared to suffering for and becoming more like Jesus because you realize. He had the most fulfilling life and he was the epitome of success and what it was to be a person. Jesus is worth being more, loved more than anything or anyone. It is the only place where he belongs. See, Jesus makes this clear by repeating the statement, is not worthy of me. He says it twice, then he'll say it again in the next verse. Being worthy of Jesus doesn't mean you earn him like some trophy See, we aren't entitled to have God accept us. We are accepted based on his love, forgiveness, and work best seen in his death and resurrection. What worthy means here is having what it takes. For example, uh, in other words, you're not fit to follow Jesus if you love someone or something more than him. If I love a friend more than my son, I'm not worthy of him. I'm not fit to be a father. This is what it means to be worthy of Jesus, to be fit. The disciples were most challenged by the example of family. But maybe this isn't what you cherish most. Maybe you're not close to family or you were betrayed by them. Maybe you don't really like family. For some of us, the example of family hits home, literally. But for others, your greatest love is something else. Maybe it's success, money, or recognition. Maybe it's pleasure, sex, comfort, or control. Maybe it's people being pleased with you, beauty, or yourself. What is it that Jesus has to compete with for your love? Because whatever it is, Jesus won't do it. He deserves and demands to be loved more than anything or anyone. Otherwise, we're not fit to be his disciples. Imagine for a moment, right, that you wanted to be the best basketball player and you received an invite from LeBron James. I'm not here to argue with anybody to train with him. All right. You got access to all of his facilities and coaches, trainers, and physical therapists, and at no cost to yourself. All you had to do was be committed. Leave home, sacrifice some downtime, even risk people turning on you because they feel betrayed by you leaving. If you were serious about playing basketball professionally, you would risk those things to go. With that type of success, you you could pay that forward. People should be happy for you. In this situation, you have Jesus, God in the flesh, coming to you because you couldn't access him to save you from a corrupt world and your own sins and bring you into his kingdom. Jesus then invites you into his mission so that others can have the same privilege as you do. We do not understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us if we love something or someone more than him. You'd be crazy to turn that opportunity down. Jesus will not be anyone's side piece. He is not going to be put in the friend zone. Jesus is not willing to be a casual acquaintance. He is supreme over all things and all people. When talking about Jesus, Colossians 1.16 says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Jesus is not some random dude we get to sideline. He is the creator and sustainer of all things. He is either all or nothing to you. This may sound extreme, but the reality is is that it would be extremely withhold, we would be extremely withholding from people and ourselves if we were to love something or someone more than Jesus. There is only one person worthy of that spot. Your family will let you down, but Jesus always delivers on his promises. See, Jesus continues in verse 38 with a similar thought. Only the emphasis changes a little bit. He says, and whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For us hearing this today, the mention of the cross is normal. We can see crosses on churches, doors, grave sites, rearview mirrors, and more. Chains, right? They're everywhere. Today, the cross is a symbol of hope and for good reason. But in Jesus's time, to the disciples who are hearing this, right? Crucifixion was a punishment used by Romans but regarded with horror by most Jews and was not, not by now familiar in Galilee as one of the worst forms of executions for a slave or a political rebel. It was the most cruel form of execution and it was a disgraceful way to die for a free person. See, carrying the cross was something Romans made victims do on their way to their own torture. People watching knew that the person carrying the cross wasn't coming back. The disciples would be very familiar with what this meant. Essentially, Jesus is asking them to follow him on a one-way journey that will cost them their lives and that will result in a shameful death. So when Jesus calls his disciples to take up their cross and follow him, he is welcoming down this one-way road to death. For us, the closest thing is death row. If anyone is not willing to go on death row and follow me, he is not worthy of me. Up to this point in the book of Matthew, the cross has not been mentioned. So this is a startling moment. We have to be willing to die for Jesus. But the truth is, many of us will probably never be martyrs, we will never die for what we believe. We will likely not die following Jesus in America. But we must be willing to. And since this isn't much of a reality to us, I wanna challenge you with this question. Are you willing to live following Jesus? Are you willing to follow him at the expense of your social status or comfort? Are you willing to follow him to love those who are difficult to love? Are you willing to share him with others or will you be stifled by fear of backlash? See, according to a study, nearly 47% of practicing Christian millennials people in my age category, churchgoers who consider religion an important part of their lives believe that evangelism is wrong. Wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. Penn Gillette, half of the comedy illusion duo Penn and Teller, has some thoughts about this. and he's an avid and very outspoken atheist. He shares a story of a man who handed him a Bible after one of his shows. And he says that the man wasn't contentious, he wasn't defensive, and he expressed himself as a sane man. Funny that you have to say that. Then, Penn, then he told Penn his intentions were to share his faith and included a note in the Bible. As Penn, the avid atheist, is telling this story, he is tearing up and he continues to say these words. I've always said that I don't respect people who don't proselytize, which means share your faith. I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and that people could be going to hell or not getting eternal life or whatever, and you think that, well, it's not really worth telling this because it would make things socially awkward, how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize? I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there is a heaven and a hell and that people could go, be going to hell that there is a he- uh, and not getting eternal life or whatever, you think that, well, It's not really worth it, then I don't respect that. He continues to compare it to somebody getting hit by a truck and he says he would tackle them to get out of the way. See how much do you have to hate somebody not to proselytize was his point. The stakes are high here, right? our cross may not have the same physical consequences but are you willing to bear it anyway as you follow Jesus are you willing to follow him on this one way road to death you may not physically die but you will experience some death in your life some things some relationships will die and it will hurt here Jesus is asking his disciples to follow him though where he is going see Jesus is the type of leader that he doesn't ask you to do something he's not willing to do himself, right? He says, pick up your cross and follow me. Meaning he is going to go before us with that cross. He is going to die. If we are following him, we can expect the same. Before any of us go out and share his message, Jesus leaves his throne. He leaves all his riches in heaven, takes on humanity To be born in humble circumstances, live on this earth and all that that entails without sin, just so that the very people he created could reject him, abuse him, and crucify him. He lives a perfect life only to trade it in for the punishment that we deserve for our sin. While he was on that cross, Jesus would experience rejection from his father, God, so that you and I could be accepted. When we proclaim this good news, we are following Jesus where he is going. It leads to death, but there is resurrection on the horizon. The truth is that you will lose a lot. You will lose relationships. You may even lose your life following Jesus. However, Jesus is saying you will gain so much more by following him than by trying to protect your life. This is the great paradox that Jesus presents us in this last verse, in verse 39. But he says, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Trying to protect your life or trying to find it will only leave you empty and lost. Bruce Almighty himself, Jim Carrey, in a famous speech said the following words, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. C.S. Lewis, to a similar effect, said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Why is it that so many people who have it all, quote unquote, feel empty? I believe it has to do with what Jesus is saying here. On the flip side, when you lose your life for Jesus' sake, you will actually find it. After hearing the mention of the cross in the last verse, it seems Jesus is speaking quite literally when he says whoever loses his life. Um, for the disciples, this was very literal. And they all, except one, died for the, what they believed in, for Jesus. Regardless of whether or not you are martyred for your faith, you will lose something following Jesus. You will need to die to self, which means you will have to put Jesus's ways Above yours, even when it is painfully uncomfortable and when it puts you at a disadvantage in this world. That includes telling people about Jesus. This isn't new. Every good thing in life points to the reality that there must be loss to have life. Think about this when you work out, you are literally ripping muscles apart so that they can repair and grow stronger. When a seed is planted, it dies before anything grows from it. The seed loses its life as a seed to become a mature plant. Denying some of your cravings hurts, but your body feels good when you eat right. Gold is purified by fire. Diamonds are made by pressure. Jesus had to die to resurrect. You can probably think of more examples. Losing your life for Jesus' Jesus' sake is actually the highest form of living. A missionary, Jim Elliott, Uh, Decided to go to one of the most dangerous parts of the world, uh, a place that was very violent, um, so that he could preach to people about Jesus. And here's what he says. He says, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He would die by the hands of the people he went to preach to, but they would know Jesus as a result. This world isn't everything. One day we are going to die. But if you take Jesus up on his offer in this text, you will find a life in him that is worth far more than this world has to offer. Later in the book of Matthew, Peter, one of the lead disciples, makes a very sobering statement. He says, see, we have left everything and followed you. What then will we have? Jesus looks at him and says, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life but many who are first will be last and the last first. That's Matthew 19, 27 through 30. As I end, I just want to sum up. In reality, the message of Jesus will disrupt. It is a beautiful message, but we live in a world hostile to this message, and Jesus isn't going to bring peace on the earth's terms. It will come with conflict, but it will be true peace. He demands love and loyalty from us above all, and at all costs. When we realize who he is and what he's done, there is no other place for him in our lives. When we realize who Jesus is and all he has done for us, the cost of our life is a small price to pay for the life that we find in him. Go and share him with someone, no matter the cost, because Jesus is worth it. Let's pray. Father, this is a hard word at first, God, but a necessary one, and a rewarding one when we look at all that we gain through you. I pray, Lord, that our hearts, God, would love you more than anything, that our loyalty to you would be at all costs, and, God, that we would love the people around us by sharing the message. In Jesus' name, amen.